and go through verses 6 through um, 12, God willing. I, uh, we introduced First Peter and we went through some of it last week. As we read from the text this morning, would you stand with me in reverence and honor of God's holy word and respect? And Peter writes through the Holy Spirit, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, and though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in, who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering these things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Thank you for standing and respect for God's precious word. The title of this message is None of These Things Move Me. None of These Things Move Me. The suffering that goes along with the Christian life and the persecution of the Christian life is not unusual. As a matter of fact, it's predicted. There are some business enterprises, and I've been exposed to one and uh, in particular, well, they'll lure you in to come to a meeting uh, about a business opportunity, <clears throat> and they won't be specific about what the opportunity is because they're fear that if you find out up front what the opportunity is, you won't come to the meeting. So they'll give you just enough information to whet your appetite that there's some things you can do to supplement your income and maybe even one day replace it. If you'll come to this meeting, we'll celebrate this business opportunity. And then when you get there, they reveal to you what the thing's all about. And it often recalls people. <clears throat> but this is not the Christian faith. Jesus does not lure us into some trap and then just go, by the way, um, there might be some suffering involved in this. He's very candid and open and honest about it. The scriptures are honest about it because the Christian life was forged in suffering. The very, the very Christian faith that we profess and the victory we enjoy did not come about as a result of wielding a sword. The Christian faith that we profess and the salvation we enjoy came about through a brutal cross. It was the suffering of our Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, God who became flesh that gifted us the gift of salvation and a right relationship with God whereby there's peace where there used to be enmity and there's reconciliation where there used to be a divide. As we look at this text, we'll look at some things, and I've outlined it this way. We're going to look at the revelation of the glories of redemption. We're going to look at the rejoicing as a result of the glories of redemption. We're going to look at the redemptive nature of suffering. We're going to look at the richness of the relationship, and we're going to look at the roots of our faith. The first thing we're going to look at is this. Coming off from last week, the place from which P Peter pivots in order to give everything else he talks about in the rest of the book to prepare people who are suffering for greater suffering and greater persecution like we talked about last week. They're on the threshold of some intense suffering and the Holy Spirit knows it. 
So he writes this book to encourage them how to handle the 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 uh, the the, uh, the storm. They're kind of in the eye of the hurricane, and there's a little bit of a calmness, but right behind that eye is a 180 mile an hour wind, and the Holy Spirit knew it was coming. So he worked through Peter to give them encouragement for what he knew they would they were going to face, and he pivots from there, like we talked about last week, to celebrate the greatness of the glories of being saved. We're elect. We've been chosen by God. God didn't we didn't choose God. God chose us. We're set apart. Set apart for a purpose. We're set apart for holy living to display his son. We serve as a result of a living hope. The Lord was raised from the dead. That ensures an eternal inheritance in heaven that cannot rust, corrode, or be taken away, stolen or threatened in any measure preserved for saints by the power of God. So everything that we've got to look forward to as a believer is secured not by your power and your fidelity or your personal resolve or you are just got to grit your teeth, going to make it to the end kind of faith. It's preserved by a faith that's gifted by God from God. And when you put faith in Jesus Christ, you're gifted with the faith of Jesus Christ. And that faith perseveres. And so... All these messages that are coming from heaven about the believer is all good news, every bit of it. Let me ask you this. Let me pose this question. What do you think would be our response daily in a practical sense to what we know about is what we believe to be true about the Christian life if we really believed it was true? Do you hear what I'm saying? What would be the... What would be the response, if we lingered around enough in the Scriptures to become convinced that everything He says we have in redemption is actually what we have, do you think that would radically change the way we daily live? I contend yes. Did you know what that would mean? That would mean that would produce a joy that is not superficial. See, our joy is so easily given over to the enemy. I mean, you know, it's so fain, it's so short-sighted, it's so, it's not, it's, it's not deep. And we'll concede our joy to our circumstances in a New York minute. Everything is rises and falls based on circumstances. Everything rises and falls based on how things are going on the outside. And we're neglecting the inward wrought grace that's gone on the inside. And the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, or Peter's saying this, the joy and victory that you can experience through your suffering is based on what's already been done for you. The trouble is, is we don't spend enough time in the Scriptures to meditate on the Word of God, to let take root truth such as the fact that you are elect, that you are set apart, that you've been chosen, that you serve at a, a living hope. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead three days later. That you are justified and from heaven the verdict has come down and for God's elect who repented toward God and put faith in His Son, the verdict is this. You are not guilty. That's what justification means. It means that you have been declared innocent of all charges and you will never, ever suffer the wrath of God that you rightfully deserve on your own. Hallelujah. What if we begin to be convinced that those things that we say are true, are true? 
We give intellectual assent to them. We say they're true, and nobody in this room probably would take us to task on them because they're clearly biblical. But why don't we walk in them? Why is there such a divorce or a, or a divide between what we believe to be true and how we're currently living? And the reason is is because we really haven't let it take root. Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. And I know of no other way to do that except to dive into the Scriptures and let the Scriptures dive into you. And then, whatever's going on on the outside only serves to reinforce the truth that you've learned on the inside. Don't let our joy, don't concede your joy. Let's don't concede our joy. Don't give it over to the enemy so easily. Don't, every time he goes, boom, don't give it up. Go to the Scriptures. Dig a well because you'll need it the next time. You'll need to draw and take a drink from it the next time you go through that valley. Dig a well while you're there. Go search for the living water. It only stands to make you stronger. And so the revelation of the glories of redemption he comes off of and he says, Thou, now, what's your response? Look at it. In verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Now this is the rejoicing as a result of the glories of our redemption. Do you know what that word means? And it might say that in some of your translations. It means be exceedingly glad. It means giddy. It means slap happy. It means intolerable joy. It means persistent joy. It's in the present tense. So it means that it's something that characterizes and should characterize the life and witness of a believer. You need to check your joy quotient. And if your joy quotient is lacking, it means that, not that there's something wrong with the truth and the Savior who redeemed you, there's something wrong with your understanding of it and your belief in it. There's the disconnect. Oh man. Joyful, patient endurance through present suffering is realized through the possession of a persistent eternal perspective. If we say, okay, if all of that's true and my eternity is secure, everything that the devil would throw at me to threaten me cannot threaten me because everything he wills to threaten is secure in heaven. So he can't touch it. So the only thing he can do with is mess with me down here. But everything I have down here is not my inheritance. My inheritance is there. It's safe. It's secure. It's protected. And it, God will see it through. I'm going to realize it one day. Joyful, patient endurance through present suffering is realized through the possession of a persistent eternal perspective. That look, though now, look. Look at the characteristics of the suffering he's talking about. Let's look at, let's look at him. He, he's got four of them right here. It's a little while. It says, though now for a little while. For a little while. Oh, I love that word temporary when we talk about it in regard to suffering. Mr. Hussein told me the other day, he said, you know, my daughter lived here for 30 years and it's like, a, it's like she was came and gone. He said, but you know what? I'm in my 70s and it's like I'm going to come and go too. He said, that's human life, isn't it? I said, that's right. The Bible calls it a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it disappears. and It's, it's away. Well, the suffering that goes along with that believer is only for a little while. That's the redemptive nature of it. It's only for a little while. Can we say this? Can we build a biblical case for this very easily? The Christian life does not protect us from suffering or even death, but it does eternally protect us from being defeated. Did you hear that? No 
place in the Bible is there any assurance that we'll be protected from suffering or even death as a result of our faith. As a matter of fact, the Bible ensures it because in 2 Timothy 2, 3, 3, 12, it says those who would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's what it says. So, it does not protect us from suffering or even death, physical death. But it does, however, eternally protect us from defeat. See, I'm not looking forward to victory. I'm living from it. I pivot from it. It's already been done. It's a finished work. It's sealed. There's nothing to be added to or taken away from. It's done. It's done. So, it's for a little while. It's also, if need be. Look at those words. I started to title the message that. But there are four characteristics, not just one. It's a little while. It's temporary. It's also if need be. If need be. There's a purpose behind it. It's not arbitrary. It's not outside God's control. Things are not spinning out of control. And then once they get spinning out of control, God comes to the rescue. God doesn't react. God only acts. And God's moving His plan according to His purpose. And He knows what it's going to take to make you most like His Son. And it's going to be suffered in difficulty and tribulation and trials and tribulations that He uses to do it. If need be, it's only if it's necessary. It's only if it's necessary for what? To display His great glory. And in working for His glory, believer, in your life, He's working for your good. I love the way Job put it. Job 23.10 a character in the Bible who knew something about suffering. He knows. He knows the way that I take. And that when He has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Don't you love that? It doesn't say the devil knows the way that I take. And when God rescues me, then I'll come forth as gold. It says God knows the way that I take. God ordains the trajectory. God sees to it. It's foreordained in His will and order and plan. He knows the way that I take. And the result is that when He's tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Praise His name. Wow is right. So it's for a little while. It's only that it's ne if it's necessary. And I'll say this in the body of Christ. And I thank God for the honesty of His Word. Look what it says. If it's for a little while, if need be, if it's necessary, and then you know what? The Bible is honest enough to tell us that it's grievous. Don't you love the way the Lord does that? You know what the Bible says? A loud voice speaking faith affirmations in the early in the morning will be counted as a curse. When you see and you're, you're around a believer who's suffering and hurting, many times the worst thing you can do at that moment is say a grandiose faith statement that neglects the hurt that they're currently under. Oh, brother, let's rejoice and praise the Lord. Was that true? Absolutely. But meet them where they are and say, wait a minute, it's grievous. I'm with you. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord together. Be benevolent, compassionate, kind, and understanding for where God has them and where they are because that's where their Savior meets them and that's how their Savior treats them. I've been, in, I've been in presence of somebody to do that before. Well, you know, uh, my four children died in a fire. Well, praise the Lord, brother. My goodness, alive. What a ridiculous thing to say. I'm using an extreme example to say we in the body of Christ can sometimes be so inconsiderate 
and so clueless sometimes. Let's let the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit and let's own up to the fact that suffering in the life of a believer is grievous. Does it steal our joy? It need not, but it is grievous. So, it's for a little while. If it's necessary, it is grievous. And I love this part right here. Watch this. It says, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. You know what that means? It means many colored, many shades and hues. It means many colors of trials. See, what you are going through and what I'm going through is different. The God who ordains it's the same. The journey is different. Peter knew all too well about this because you remember what happened to Peter in John 21 when God had reestablished him and he restored him. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you agape me? You remember we went through that last week? Peter looks over and says, and he basically says, by the way, you're going to be martyred for your faith. You know what Peter said? Do you remember what he said? What about this guy? He's talking about John. And God, Jesus basically said, just worry about yourself. Don't worry about him. His journey is different. Yours is, I've already said yours. His is different. It's many colored. It's many faceted. But you know what? You can marry that same word. And I, you got to go look at this because it's going to bless you. Look at uh, 1 Peter 4.10. Let's go over there. 1 Peter 4.10. Turn right a little bit and look at that. It says... As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. <clears throat> manifold and various are the same two words, from the same Greek words translated both of them. Here's what it means. No matter what form your suffering takes, there's an equal form of grace to give you favor in the middle of it. Even your suffering is multicolored and so is God's grace. It's multicolored. It's manifold. And whatever your lot is and wherever you are, God's grace to give you the power to thrive through it is equal to the task because it's multicolored. God's grace appears in a bunch of different ways, in a bunch of different settings, in many different means, but it all attests to where you are in your suffering. Isn't that wonderful? What a merciful, gracious God we serve. Hallelujah to His name. Let's go back to where we are. So, it is that we can rejoice in knowing that it's for a little while. It's only if it's necessary in my conformity into God's Son. It is grievous. The Bible owns up to that. And it is multicolored. It is takes many forms and it's accompanied by many forms of grace to empower us to deal with it. That's the redemptive nature of our suffering. The rejoicing that should come from it is because of the revelation of the glories of our redemption. If what the Bible is, does say is true about us, it would change everything. It's a game changer for sure. And it's all predicated upon the richness of the relationship. Look out, look, follow me with you. You've been grieved by various trials. The purpose of it, the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've talked about time and again, and you've heard the narrative. But he uses gold here because it's the most precious of metals. And that's the way we can get our arms around how precious 
the trials are because of the faith that emerges from it. It's the faith that's precious. It's just the trials that cause it to surface to the top. When I preached my dad's funeral, his name was Jack. You've heard me tell this story, and I used his name as an acrostic. J, thankful for Jesus. A, thankful for all of you. C, thankful for cancer. Cancer is what took my dad. I was thankful for it. You know why? Because the suffering of cancer is what made genuine faith emerge. I didn't know it was there. And now I can say with confidence, I know my dad's in heaven because God gave us cancer. If he'd have been killed in an automobile wreck just like that, I would have, it would have been a whole different funeral. I would have, I'd had to say and be honest, I do not know whether my dad's in heaven or hell. But because of the gift of cancer, of the suffering, the faith that is a gift emerged and over the course of 24 or 26 months of chemotherapy, faith became known. And you know what? What is more precious than that? That wasn't for God's benefit. God knew whether or not His faith was genuine. It was for His. And it was for mine. And it was for my mother. And it was for every now and then my mother would get a little bit weak and say, You sure? I said, Mom, look at the track record and we'll start celebrating and say, Oh, we're going to see my dad again. We're going to see him again. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Why? Because God gave him suffering in the form of cancer and real faith came out of it. See, when it's tested, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. There's so little confidence in our faith because we protect each other. The worst thing we can do is to protect one another from God-ordained suffering. That's getting in the way of what God wills and purposes to do in somebody's life to show them the metal of their faith is to assay it. It means to test it, to see if there's anything to it. And we've talked about it before, but God puts us in the crucible. And you've heard the stories before, Andrew. I, you've been around Christendom long enough to hear this. But you put, the, you put it in the vial. And you turn up the heater. And you turn up the flame. And there's a flame lit under it. And there's a, you manage the flame. You turn it hot enough, just hot enough, so it doesn't damage the good stuff. But yet, make sure it's hot enough to get out the bad. And all the impurities of the metal rise to the top. And you're managing that flame. Well, guess who's sitting over the flame? God the Holy Spirit. And He's managing the flame. And it's got to be intense enough for the bad stuff to come to the top. But it's not going to be inti too intense for, let, for, the, good, for, the, for, the, for it to, the bad stuff to remain. And He manages that flame and emerges and comes to the top, scrapes it off and looks down and knows He's finished when He sees His own reflection. Oh, that's the picture of what God's doing. Can we receive it that way? Can we orient ourselves to that kind of thinking and say, Lord, in the middle of grievous trials that are temporary, that are necessary, you are shaping me into the image of your Son. When things roll well, I ask you that. Have you ever done that? God, make me like your Son. And then God goes about doing it and we go, I didn't bargain for that. He says, wait a minute, that's how it's done. Oh, what a grace, what a gracious God we serve. Look at Romans 5, 3-5. through 5. And Andrew, you all studied this, I know, in your home Bible study. Your dad's told me as much. Look at Romans 5. Let's go over and look at it. The genuineness of the faith being tested. Whether or not your faith is real is of great interest to you, isn't it? And some of us doubt our salvation and need not doubt it because we draw from... We draw from the Word of God and then we respond correctly and 
in faith in the middle of trials, and then faith begins to take root, and it's the kind of faith that we can put our confidence in to have some kind of assurance of knowing that when we drop dead, we're going to be in His presence. Look at Romans 5. It says, And not only that, but we also glory or exult in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Can I say this right here? We, that, that right there, it would take months to preach a sermon series on that, that, uh, that text right there. And we're not going to do that. But let me, let me just summarize it with this. Everyone, everyone, everyone is the object of God's love. The Bible's clear about that. For God so loved the... Right? God loves. That's His character. It's what God does because, Kelly, it's who He is. God loves because He is love. Everyone is the object of God's love. Upon repentance toward God and faith in His Son, you become the recipient of God's love. You could, it could be the object of God's love and yet never receive it. And you receive it through repentance and faith in His Son. Right? Which is a gift. Patient endurance through trials is when you begin to understand God's love. See, you're the object of it before you got saved. Everybody you see around you, saved and lost, is the object of God's love. Upon repentance toward God and faith in His Son, you become the recipient of God's love. But patient endurance through trials is when you begin to understand God's love. And when you understand God's love, it's based on the fact that you've responded correctly to the trial and your default has been the relationship. And out of that emerges what? Confident hope and joy because you realize you've been through the rigor, come out the other end based on the grace of God and because of that, you're more confident in your faith than you've ever been. It's redemptive in nature. It's redemptive because, it won't, because of what God wants to show you about your relationship with Him. It's also redemptive because when He works in your life and you faithfully endure, it preaches the gospel to others. When you have a testimony that says, you know what, hey, look, I've seen you go through. I've watched from a distance and seen your life. And you go, hey, let me tell you this. I'm going to ante up and just own up to you. Let me tell you this. Any joy that you've seen me have and any peace I've had through this, and I've had my times, but any patient endurance you've seen through this is because I'm saved. Because God's changed my life. How'd He do it? And then it's a platform for the gospel, isn't it? That's the redemptive nature of it, the richness of the relationship. Can I say this to you? And this came out in our Roman study when we were dealing with this and we were talking about this business about Let's go back over to First Peter, if you will. Um, I love the way the navigators put this. And I don't know where the navigators are now. That's a ministry that's been around for a long time, and I can't comment. I have no idea uh, what bent they're on. I don't mean to say that they're on a bad one. I just don't know. I haven't, haven't, I haven't uh, been exposed to that ministry for a long time and many years. But I know that the rock they were hewn out of seems to be good. And I just don't think you can improve upon this statement as far as just maybe even in almost summary of the life, witness, and um, charge of the church. And it's very simple. It's very simple. You heard it before. 
If you've been around long enough as a Christian, you've probably heard this before. To know Him and to make Him known. To know Him and to make Him known. To know Him is to make Him known. Just like to fear Him is to know Him, and to know Him is to fear Him. To know Him is to make Him known. And we spend and we make sometimes a superficial investment in knowing Him. And if, we, if our investment in knowing Him doesn't deepen over time, then we lose sight of the excitement and the priority of making Him known. He said, Your faith may be found to praise, and honor, and glory based on what? That having not seen Him, you love Him. And though you don't see Him now, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith the outcome of your faith, which would be the salvation of your souls. The richness of the relationship of having believed and loved a God that you've never seen, but yet you've experienced. He's changed my life. He's changed your life. Here's the problem. This came out of the Roman study where we're talking about this. You got God up in the <clears throat> let's say it, make make it liken it to a plantation, and you got God up in the in the main house, and we're slaves out in the field, and we're out there toiling, and we're laboring as hard as we can, and if we're not careful, we'll get our information about the master from somebody we're laboring with. And we'll listen to people and they'll say, listen, don't you dare go up there. Because let me tell you something right now. He's a tyrant and he's ready to knock you out. You step on his back porch. I've heard tell that some were bold enough to go up there and approach him and got up there. And he went outside and took a board to him. And they had the gashes in their head to prove it. Don't you go up there. Let's just work hard down here as hard as we can. And let's labor in this field. And let's sweat. And let's toil. And let's do all we can. In hopes that one day if we go back up there, he won't kill us. And he'll lead us to let us eat the scraps that come from his table. And we listen to that. And we go, hmm. And we listen to second-hand information. I said the other day in joking, there are some things you just don't share. One of them is toothpicks. You don't share toothpicks. If I was using a toothpick and you needed one, you wouldn't come to me and say, Brother Lynch, when you get through with that, can I borrow that toothpick? I've never had anybody do that. Second-hand faith is almost like that. You make comments on a God that we've not taken the time to get to know. And we listen to people. we got so many people out there floating stuff in the airways, and we're listening to them, and we're letting things take root, and we're letting things take root, and we're getting notions about God that are very much not like God. And so we don't dare go up there and approach Him. We don't dare go up there. Let me tell you, let me tell you, you know one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and Catherine gets on to me all the time, saying, Dad, you say that about all of them. Well, they are. you know. But, but let me say this to you. It's Exodus 33.11. You want to turn there for a second? Exodus 33.11. I was going to do a whole sermon on this because you could do one on this. 
Let God speak for God. Let him speak directly to you. Nestle under his wing and get out the scriptures and let the Lord speak to you himself about who he is. Get your prompts from daring to go up to the inner place where the boss lives and see what kind of favor you'll enjoy. He doesn't tolerate you. You didn't get in by mistake. There are no unplanned births in the kingdom. Every one of them are intentional. You didn't get in by mistake and God go, how'd you get in here? God ordained and chose that you would be in. And I can't figure all that out, but that's what the Bible teaches. But think of this. Think of the plight of somebody who is, who is affected every day, he and his family, by the fact that he's surrounded by two and a half million people that won't trust God. Joshua and Caleb. Have you ever thought about what it must have been like for them? We talk about the fact that they go in there and they come out and they, they're the minority. Remember the story. They sent 12 spies in. They go look at the promised land. They come back and say the grapes are that big. Everything is exactly what God said and then some. Let's take it. And then 10 of them say, nope, the giants are in the land. We'll never be able to do it. We're not armed. We'll be, we'll be killed if we dare approach them. Could you imagine? As a result of them going, Ashley, with the majority report, that meant 40 years of being held back by somebody who believed God. Could you imagine what it would be like for, to, around the camp? I'm just thinking about this when reading the scripture. And Joshua's over there, and, he, and, and you know, it should have been an 11-day journey. And it wound up being 40 years. And I'm sure there would be many a night he'd look over there on the horizon and see and go, we could be living there. <laughs> we could be right there. My whole family could benefit from this. And we could have this forever. God's promised it to us. And everything you said about it, I got, I got a taste of it, and I'm not satisfied with this at all. <laughs> you know, I mean, because I've tasted to see that the Lord's good, and He wet my appetite, and I can't be satisfied with anything less than that. I, the manna's good, and I appreciate it, but I don't want to live on manna. I'm ready for some steaks, I'm ready for some big giant grapes, and it's right there. We're right, right there. You could lob a, a basketball over there to it. We're right there, and we can't go in because of the obstinate, disbelief, hard-headed, stiff-necked people around me. And I thought, I thought, what was his secret? What was his secret? And I believe embedded in this verse was his secret. This was his secret. This is how you do it. And no matter what circumstance you're in, and no matter where you find on the outside, nobody can keep you from moving in. And this is how you do it. See, Joshua might not have been in the promised land physically, but he was spiritually. He was already there. And look what his secret is. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. He lived life in the presence of God. That's your inheritance as a believer. And patient endurance through suffering will make you draw upon resources that you don't have and you'll get to know your great God. And it's the knowledge of Him that's the basis upon which victory is won. And then you'll be excited about making Him known because you've experienced Him yourself. And you didn't borrow anybody else's toothpick or listen to another slave who's out there laboring for God's favor when in reality we enjoy and serve Him because we have it through His Son. Amen. There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's a place He wants us to move into. And the Apostle Paul was so convinced of that. Look at Acts 20, 21. 
We've got two verses and we'll close. That's another thing, too. Andrew says, you always say that, Daddy, we'll close, and then you do it 30 minutes later. But the Apostle Paul has this tender moment with the Ephesian elders. He's about to uh, leave. And he says, He says, I testified to you, the Jews, and also to the Greeks, what? Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But listen to this. None of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy and ministry, which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He was told in the next chapter, in chapter 21, look at it. He was told by a prophet in verse 10. And we stayed there many days. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound it around his hands and feet, and said, "Feet," and said, "This says the Holy Spirit: So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." And friends, that's exactly what happened. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered and said, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. None of these prophecies move me. If the Lord tells you up front that persecution and trials and tribulations await you, then persecutions, trials, and tribulations await you. Because everything that God says... God does. And he was told up front, and his conclusion was this. I'm going to continue to run the race because I met him at the Damascus Road, and he met me, and I'm not the same. And I'm going to keep running the race no matter what awaits me. Now, for the Church of the Living God in America, tribulation and persecution await us. It's, it's coming. It's coming. I don't know what form it'll take, and I don't know how bad it's going to get, but it's coming. And we need to patiently endure. We need to be rejoicing over the position we hold with Jesus because anything that's thrown at us from any enemy we have, world, flesh, or the devil, any of them, cannot threaten my treasure because my treasure is not here. It's in heaven. And patient endurance is based on an eternal perspective and it's rooted in a relationship that we care to know and develop with a benevolent, kind, knowable God who loves you, and He will test your faith, not for, your, not for His benefit, but for yours. Amen? Don't let it move you. Don't let it get you off course. And don't, oh dear ones, beloved, don't let the circumstances, your flesh, the enemy, or this world, steal your joy. Don't concede it. Don't give it away.